Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, this, uh, after, yeah, this afternoon, I got a, um, I was on a phone call uh, with some people, actually it's a conference call, and got some news that was significant news that was going to have an effect on on a number of things uh, in my uh, in my life, and it was just going to make make me have to um, look at priorities and what I was going to do, and you know it was all a very workable situation, but. Um, the status quo quo was shaken a bit, and I'd have to get in gear. So I got off the phone. I thought my first response was, "Oh shit!" Yeah, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. <laughs> and then it was, um, "Hmm. Oh, I'm giving a Dharma talk tonight." <laughs> which is a wonderful way to kind of remind yourself of another perspective. So I, I'm really glad that you all came. <laughs> Gave me some motivation to reflect. You know when that happens? Think of the last time that's happened in your life, that you've gotten some news that you had the response, oh shit. I mean, this is not somebody dying or anything like that, which is, um, you know, that's a different kind of news. That's certainly, it's another kind of oh shit. But this is all manageable. Remember what that was like? How many people have had some kind of news like that, say, in the last three months? Let's just take a little survey. Okay, all right. Well, we know where we're at. It's like life comes knocking on your door saying, oh, you think you had it all together, huh? Did I say that line? Uh, um, I don't know if I mentioned it here. Did I say it about people who have their, their shit together? Those who think they have their shit together, this is for the new people, are usually standing in it. Uh, <laughs> Okay, I know I'm not going to repeat that again. Another, <laughs> another year anyway. Yeah. So I figured I'd go for a walk and uh, pick up some... It was really a gorgeous day today, wasn't it? Incredible. This was as good as it gets for me. And I figured I'd just pick up some Dharma inspiration if I... Uh, sat down somewhere, so I picked up um, some mail. I get uh, lots of different mail with different Dharma talks, and I have this whole pile of of magazines and talks and that I that are waiting for me in some future lifetime. Uh, I never seem to get to, but I figured, okay, I'll pick up this one. I had never not taken a good look at it before, and st interestingly enough, 
Um, I had gone out to lunch, interesting for me, I'd gone out to lunch with some friends uh, with this guy who was my first roommate. We were matched together at Naropa Institute in 1974, um, the summer that I fell in love with the Dharma, with Buddha Dharma. Uh, and he came, he was visiting the Bay Area, he lives in Boulder still, uh, and he came with his wife and two children, and they're very much into Tibetan practices, and we were talking about um, teachers and all, and I said, well, is there anybody who, who inspires you to this, uh, his wife? And she said, well, there's this one, this one guy, this one Tibetan Rinpoche, um, whose name is uh, Kempo Tsultrum Rinpoche. And I said, oh, well, I, that's neat. I hadn't heard of him. And she was just telling me some nice little things about him. So when I picked up this piece of mail, I said, okay, well, let's see what this one has for me. And there he is, the very venerable Kempo Tsultrum Gyamso Rinpoche, I said, okay, here's my little message from the universe, all is not lost, okay. And on the, the front is a, um, uh, a quote that I want to share some reflections on. The quote is this, whoever knows this life to be like the reflection of the moon in water. Whenever happiness arises, will not be attached. Whenever suffering arises, will not be depressed and will attain true inner peace. Whoever knows this life to be like the reflection of the moon in water, Whenever happiness arises, will not be attached. Whenever suffering arises, will not be depressed and will attain true inner peace. What does that mean? Knowing this life is like the reflection of a moon in water. And I'll share a few other uh, passages that, that point to this topic. This is from the Diamond Sutra, a famous little passage. Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. When we can remember this, then our lives and our dramas take on a whole different meaning. The word vipassana, you know that word vipassana, meaning to see things clearly or to see things as they are. Actually, another way to understand the translation, to see things clearly, what are we seeing clearly? This is what Vipassana is pointing to. Seeing 
three doorways to inner peace. One of three doorways to inner peace. The three characteristics of existence. First one being anicca or impermanence. Second one, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. And the third one being anatta or, or the selfless nature of the process. These three doorways are liberating. And when you get that kind of news that you have that response, oh shit. When you see it through any one of those doorways, there is the possibility of really um, holding it a different way. A Nietzsche impermanence reminds you, oh, it's really yucky now but this will pass. This is a tremendous gift to remember. Especially when you feel like you're stuck for forever in a no-exit situation. The understanding of dukkha is realizing, but it's more than just an intellectual realization, it's a, it's a true experiential gut understanding that trying to hold on to changing experience or trying to control that which is out of control to be attached to things being a certain way is the cause of a lot of pain and suffering and so that doorway invites us to look at what it is that we're trying to control in this changing process. And in that seeing, ah, here's attachment at work, there's a possibility of not being caught by it and being released, or letting go, having that as an option. The third one, this anatta or selfless nature of the process, is really pointing to um, what these two quotes are saying. Anatta. That things are not what they seem. The reality that we think is just our mind creation. The sense of solidity that we have. I'm me. This is my body, this is my mind, this is different from this out there. When we see deeply into the selfless nature of the process, then the solidity of reality starts to shimmer and break up. And in fact, it's possible to at times see through the whole thing as being just this creation of our mind and our heart, our wants, our sense impressions interpreting things in a certain way. You know you, that, uh, that round that we all learned early, as early as we could remember any singing, you know, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. How profound. 
and it's like a flash of lightning, a bubble. Just for a moment, it seems like the whole world is here, and for that moment being 70 years or 80 years or 65 years or whatever, and boom, gone into emptiness. Emptiness. This is from Jack. He says, an aspect of emptiness of self is encountered when we notice how everything arises out of nothing. It comes out of the void, returns to the void, goes back to nothing. All our words of the past day have disappeared. Similarly, where has the past week or the past month or our childhood gone? They arose, did a little dance, and now they vanished along with the 1980s, the 19th and 18th century, the ancient Romans and Greeks, the pharaohs, and so forth. All experience arises in the present, does its dance, and disappears. Experiences come into being only tentatively for a little time in a certain form, then that form ends and a new form replaces it moment by moment. This concept of emptiness is, is very deep. Now, it doesn't mean that things don't exist. And so I want to just clarify it, because even bringing this subject up, which I do from time to time, I'm opening up the door for you know, people scratching their heads or, or getting um, resistant. And I just want to say, as we discuss this subject, you don't have to believe anything. That's one of the things that I love about these teachings. Remember, we did the Kalama Sutta a few, a few uh, weeks ago. So just take it for what it is, how it hits you, and then you know, let it percolate and don't have to get into a mental argument one way or another. And it'll be interesting to see what comes out of a discussion. It seems, on the one hand, almost like this is a bad joke, you know, this, this world. You know, we, we get born into it, and the Buddha talks a lot about there's suffering in life, and, you know, it can be be very depressing if you, if you see how everything that arises is going to pass away, or it doesn't have any substantiality at all. What does that mean? If I really see into things, am I going to vanish into thin air? You know, that's what I used to think when I really understood emptiness of self, that somehow I'd you know, evaporate or vanish. And it was really scary, and this is not an uncommon thing to think that you're going to disappear when you see through this illusion of self. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't hurt. And also, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that literally you don't exist. There are different levels that we're talking about here. 
and I'll share with you a quote that I, I've shared in the past. It's a really beautiful quote that gives the other side of this dance that says, yeah, it's, it's not real. You don't exist ultimately. There's no separation. And on a relative level, you're you and you are. And there's never been one just like that. And this is from Martha Graham. And she says, there is vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep that channel open. Beautiful quote. What is coming through us out of that void through this body and mind that has taken form in this physical reality. It's a mystery. It's a real mystery. And it's to be honored, you know, just like there's each unique snowflake and each unique fingerprints and amazing how creative the, the universe is on this physical plane. But where does it come from? That's the question. Who knows? Some people say the word God. And that can be a, a useful name for that which is unnameable. Some people call it Buddha nature or true self or no self. But when we see deeply what's here, Ultimately, this play, the dance of form, is just an expression of something, the ground of being, which cannot be named. The Tibetans have a, a beautiful phrase for it. They call it the world of form, the magical display. It's like this is all magic done with mirrors, which it is, lots of mirrors, you know, or one big mirror. And we have this life that has a, a drama in it, and has a comedy, and has tragedy, and has everything, and has all this interrelated, exquisite dance going together. But it's all a magical display. And sometimes it can seem very um, grim magical display, and other times it can seem so joyous, this magical display. But ultimately, from the place of that bigger reality, it is just dancing, doing its dance. And I was reminded as I was thinking of, uh, of this topic to share with you um, some passages of a Mark Twain short story. I haven't shared this in, uh, in a while. That I read the first summer, that first summer at Naropa, Joseph Goldstein had suggested that people in, in the class read this story. It's called The Mysterious Stranger. How many people have read Mysterious Stranger? Great story. Okay. 
some children come across a very amazing being <clears throat> who intrigues them with some magic tricks. I'll read a, a little bit. He made a tiny toy squirrel out of clay, and it ran up a tree and sat on a limb overhead and barked down on us. Then he made a dog that was not much larger than a mouse, and it treed the squirrel and danced about the tree, excited and barking, and was as alive as any dog could be. It frightened the squirrel from tree to tree and followed it up until both were out of sight in the forest. He made birds out of clay and then set them free, and they flew away singing. At last I made bold to ask him to tell us who he was. An angel, he said quite simply, and set another bird free and clapped his hands and made it fly away. A kind of awe fell upon us when we heard him say that, and we were afraid again. But he said, we not, need not be troubled. There was no occasion for us to be afraid of an angel, and he liked us anyway. He went on chatting as simply and unaffectedly as ever. And while he talked, he made a crowd of little men and women the size of your finger. And they went diligently to work and cleared and leveled off a space a couple of yards square in the grass and began to build a cunning little castle in it, the women mixing the mortar and carrying it up the scaffolding in pails on their heads, just as our workwomen have always done, and the men laying the courses of masonry, 500 of these toy people swarming briskly about and working diligently and wiping the sweat off their faces as natural as life. And then, as he was talking, one of the women held a chip. Oh, sorry. Uh, one of the women, a little woman who was on a scaffold, fell from the scaffolding and put her back where she w and my friend put her back where she belonged and said, she's an idiot to step backward like that and not notice what she's about. Here it is. Okay. Two of the little workmen began quarreling and in buzzing little bumblebee voices, they were cursing and swearing at each other. Now came blows and blood. Then they locked themselves together in a life and death struggle. Satan, oh, the name of his name was Satan, but not the real Satan. He was the nephew of the real Satan. Okay. Satan reached out his hand and crushed the life out of them with his fingers, threw them away, wiped the red from his fingers on his handkerchief, and went on talking where he had left off. We cannot do wrong, neither have we any disposition to do it, for we do not know what wrong is. They have been asking about, about sin. He went right on talking just as if nothing had happened, telling about his travels and the interesting things he'd seen in the big world, and the big worlds of our solar system and other solar systems far away in remotenesses of space and about customs of immortals that habit them, inhabit them, somehow fascinating us, enchanting us, charming us, in spite of the pitiful scene that was now under our eyes. 
For the wives of the little dead men had found the crushed and shapeless bodies and were crying over them and sobbing and lamenting. And a priest was kneeling there with his hands crossed upon his breast, praying. And crowds and crowds of pitying friends were massed about them, reverently uncovered, with their bare hands bowed, and many with the tears running down, a scene which the angel paid no attention to until the small noise of the weeping and praying began to annoy him. Then he reached out and took the heavy board seat out of our swing and brought it down on them and mashed all those people into the earth, just as if they'd been flies and went on talking just the same. He said, well, we'll have a storm now and an earthquake if we liked, but we must stand off a piece out of danger. We wanted to call the people away too, but he said, never mind them. They are of no consequence. We could make more sometime or other if we needed. I am not limited like you. I'm not subject to human conditions. I can measure and understand your human weaknesses for I've studied them, but I have none of them. My flesh is not real, although it would seem firm to your touch. My clothes are not real. I'm spirit. And then just the very last thing. At the very end. Life is only a vision, a dream. It was electrical by God. I had had that very thought a thousand times in my musings. Nothing exists. All is a dream. God, man, the world, the sun, the moon, the wilderness of stars. A dream. All a dream. They have no existence. Nothing exists save empty space and you. I? And you are not you. You have no body, no blood, no bones. You are but a thought. So when I read that story, I remember at first being really horrified, like, oh my God, how uncompassionate. But looking at it from the bigger picture, this is all just a play coming into being for a while, and here we are doing our little dance and our drama on this, this little speck in this solar system, in this galaxy, in this huge universe of billions of galaxies. It's just playing with itself. Life is just playing with itself. And this is the great gift of seeing through our relative reality, seeing the emptiness of it all and honoring it once you see that emptiness. So picking up that piece of, of mail and reminding me, it was amazing how quickly my whole reality changed. And it was, uh, the thing is, as we do practice, that I find so wonderful is even though you, f you can forget, and I forget plenty, I forgot as I hung up the phone, it's just one thought away. Our understanding is just one thought away waiting to be reminded, particularly if we've seen for ourselves and know something to be true in a deeper perspective than our normal waking reality, 
those insights, that understanding, it's just a thought away. And then you can play in your life. It's, oh, okay, well, this is the next reel in the movie. How neat, how interesting. I wonder what lessons I'm getting now. I wonder if this is going to be a melodrama. Is this going to be a comedy? Is this going to be the, you know, the great adventure of all time? Think of how many people take their lives, us included, so seriously. We hear something that's unpleasant news, we get bummed out. And then we can get bummed out about being bummed out and get into a real spin saying, oh no, I got caught again. How long have I been getting caught? This isn't working. When seeing through those thoughts is just one thought away. Ah, this is all mental creation. This is all just life playing with itself through us. So I think I'll stop here and uh, open it up to discussion, either about the topic or anything else in practice. First, see if there's anything that comes up from the topic. Yeah, and if you'd pass the microphone, that's the talking stick, and say your name and then your comments. said it beautifully. Yeah, there, there is pain and there's pleasure. There's joy and there's sorrow. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows is a, a, a common phrase. That's part of being in this, in this game. And just like you, when you go to a good theater or movie, you get moved by the, the sorrow and it touches you and opens up your heart in a certain way. And you appreciate and enjoy aesthetically the, uh, the laughter and the, the comedy or whatever it is the happiness is. Yeah, wonderful. It's just when we make more of them and get lost in thinking either we have to do something about them or keep on ruminating and get caught. And in that process, forget about the rest of life that, that's happening, that's optional. That's optional. Is that? Yeah, so I think sometimes I get stuck in thinking of the initial experiences, you know, like the person being It's a, it's a really good point, particularly for people who are 
um, giving themselves to you know Dharma practice and have that particular notion, which I've had it also at times, or having that misconception. Oh, you shouldn't let yourself be happy. Oh, you shouldn't let yourself be sad or grieving or or in pain. That's part of the package, and to deny that or pretend or try to shut it off is going to be just adding more confusion and pain. But rather, to really connect with it fully, ooh, oh, what a deep experience of grieving this is, okay? And letting it come through you, that's very different than wallowing in it because you don't realize there's another alternative. The same way with happiness, you know, the, the near enemy of sympathetic joy is classically translated as exhilaration, where you get so lost and swept up, you know, that you, you forget yourself. Okay. That doesn't happen so much, you know. I, I would say, you know, don't worry about clamping down on your joy. I think we, <laughs> we could use a little bit more joy in the world for most of, for most of us, you know. So it's just the, the secondary response. And you might have that secondary response and then get lost in that for a while. Any time along the way, you can remember and say, oh, okay, it's enough, or I got lost. Time to, there, it's, it, you don't have to beat yourself up for getting lost and then beat yourself up for beating yourself up and like that, infinite regression. It's just, oh, okay. Wake up. You know those moments where you just wake up from your whole drama? It seemed really intense, and then, you know, you got distracted, and, oh, okay, it's not that intense. You woke up. That's possible. Yeah, so... I'm Gary. This is theoretical nature, but the idea of the nothingness and uh, that was basically projection. The moonlight shimmering on the water. Uh, in, in the Judeo-Christian and May tradition, they would probably agree with that and say that there is a projector and they call that God. Um, in Buddhist thinking, is there a term or a description for the projector or Uh, there is not a projector, as in the case of one who is doing the projecting. Um, there is instead not a, f- not a fixed being out of which it's coming. But um, the word dharma is the, the corollary, which could be said to be the, the lawful unfolding of perfection, or the lawful unfolding of, of this mystery. Um, but when you have a projector, then there is a... Um, the process be, has become fixed in this thing. It's coagulated into this being, this thing, and stopped being a process. So when the Buddha was asked, how did it all start? Where did it all begin? He said that was one of the four reflections that would drive you crazy. (laughs) So he begged the question, 
What's that? He, he copped out. You could say he copped out, or he could say there's no answer to that. No beginning, no ending. And what he suggested was instead to um, experience for yourself the unconditioned, that which is beyond conditioning of arising and passing, which he called nibbana or um, the awakened uh, mind. So it's not, not a fixed being. Here's a little something. It was another uh, passage I wanted to read on enlightenment. That addresses uh, a bit this question. Enlightenment, and one could also say God, has no form, no definite form or nature by which it can manifest itself. So in enlightenment, there is nothing to be enlightened. Enlightenment exists solely because of delusion and ignorance. If they disappear, so will enlightenment. The natural state is God expressing itself through, through this being. Actually, here, this is the other passage that I want. Ah, uh, yeah. Your true nature, this is from Huang Po, your true nature is something never lost to you, even in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It is the nature of the suchness. The suchness, just the, the beingness of things. And it doesn't refer back to where it came from. It's just here. So that's one difference between, say, Judeo-Christian. And this keeps on pointing to process rather than, uh, rather than noun, rather than thing. And it's just, here, you can pass the uh, microphone. And it's just the way I see it. You know, uh, when somebody says, are you a Buddhist or not a Buddhist or whatever, I don't usually word, use the word Buddhist, um, and I, I don't use not Buddhist. And when I think of God or Dharma or all of those, they're just words. They're just words that these limited human minds are trying to understand what is incomprehensible in the universe. So actually, the word that I often use to myself, really, and sometimes in talks, is mystery. It's mystery. That kind of might also be begging the question, but that's what sums it up. I have no idea where it all came from or what's going on or how the show is running, but it's doing it. So I can just sit back in amazement and awe sometimes and, and celebrate that. Uh, I didn't raise my hand when you asked you know, if I had one of those news in the past three months because uh, I work at UC Berkeley and manage uh, the laboratories and uh, I, I have to manage about 15 projects at the same time so these kind of things happen to me five times a day and uh, uh, sometimes you know my engineers freak out because things change suddenly and something 
horrible happens, an instrument dies in the middle of the test and so on. So I say, well, no problem, just a little bit of dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> and I get upset, you know, if, if, you, if you're, you're just suffering or you're getting upset just because you're resisting change, forget about it and just keep going and, and keep working with the project. So uh, in this sense, uh, this practice has helped me a lot in my life at work and also at home. Uh, my step uh, children, my stepchild came back from university to be back at home for the summer. And of course now all the lights are on and shoes all over the place and caps all over the place, everything is a mess. And you know when I was driving here I was saying, oh, I want to phone his mother, mother is in Argentina, and tell her to call him or send him a fax about not being this or not being that. So, and then as I approach it, they say, start to calm me down. And, uh, but I, what, what I wanted to say is that something that helps a lot is loving kindness. When you are in the middle of that kind of mind process of the stories, telling the stories and so on, if you can remember to, to do a little loving kindness, that, that helps a lot to dissipate that. Mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I thought that you can do that for your problem. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hello, Irene. Uh, a lot of my life has been spent in trying to figure out what my purpose in life is. And uh, as I've gotten older, I guess I, I've come to, a, I, it's not a guess, I've come to a conclusion that my life is to be myself, which I think is what these writings are about. And, uh, and the interesting thing is that where that is my purpose, it's like a lot of, I guess most of life, it's a real paradox. And the paradox is my purpose is to be myself, and there is no purpose. And it's, uh, it's very wonderful. <laughs> Just learning to be who you are. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's beautiful. Well, that's yeah. That's great. Thank you. I find that image very helpful too. Just a process happening. Anybody else? Yeah, over, over there. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about the 
passer. Speak right into it and your name. What's the pudding? <laughs> Whether the, the philosophy is can help one survive in a, a good way. Um, it's it's a very deep question and issue. Um, for me, it's it's a lot like that mysterious stranger story, where on the one hand those kids were in complete horror. And when we see suffering, the natural expression of wisdom, of seeing the interconnectedness, is to respond to that suffering. That, the Buddha was called the all-compassionate one, and compassion is the response to suffering around, wanting to relieve it. Um, however, you can get completely um, completely uh, overwhelmed by all the suffering around you. So if you have that, and especially if you're looking for suffering, you hear the first noble truth, there's suffering in life, and you start looking, and it's everywhere. You know, actually, you don't have to even look so hard. You have to almost close your eyes not to. Uh, and you can get just completely paralyzed by all the suffering. So there's got to be a more skillful way to hold it than have your heart break apart in, you know, in all of those instances. Sometimes when people talk about the Holocaust, you know, and they say, oh, well, yeah, that sounds fine, you know, how about the Holocaust? And I, I've said this just in the last uh, couple of months. I was in New York, and somebody asked me about this in a talk, and I said, yeah, and there's Rwanda, and there's Tibet, and there's the Crusades, and there's the whole history of life on the planet in, in our human realm. This talk was given by James Barris at Berkeley Sitting Group in 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.